This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Want to know what's going on in your neck of the woods and learn the history and the people behind the events that you love across the state? Get to know the real Mississippi. Check out MPB Think Radio's Next Stop Mississippi podcast on all platforms or on the MPB public media app. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we'll welcome Joe McGowan, ant curator at the Mississippi Entomological Museum. Ants are among the most numerous of creatures on the planet and play a significant role in many ecosystems. So we'll talk ants today and how they affect Mississippi's wildlife. Dr. Major is ready to take your pet questions, and Libby uh, is joining us. She always likes to hear about your encounters with nature. You can join our conversation this morning. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning, Libby. Hope that you're doing well this morning. You uh, report to us, as you have been recently, from the West Coast to Pacific Northwest in Oregon. What are you seeing outside your window? Well, it's a it's a nice, cool day this morning, starting out that way at about, I think it's maybe 58, 60 out there right now. And I've got a few things going, but we've been um, spending our time on the water, uh, particularly on the Alsea River here, to avoid the heat. And I noticed in the Clarion Ledger yesterday or this morning, when I was reading it this morning, that Brian Broom was recommending getting out on the creeks, which sounds like a good idea. And I was interested to see that um, he names uh, five creeks, Chunky River, Strong River, Chickasaway, uh, the Bogachitta, and the Black Creek that all now have access to um, kayak and canoe rentals, which mm. is fantastic. Mm. So that sounds like a great thing. And in anticipation of our interview today with Joe about ants, I have been looking for Oregon ants. They're certainly not as obvious as our fire ants. Have to kind of hunt for them. But um, I, I learned that there are 97 species of ants found in Oregon. Hmm. And I don't know if that's a lot compared to Mississippi or not. We'll hear what Joe has to say. We've even got one. I found a couple of carpenter ants, uh, different species that look a little bit different. And um, I always like to watch carpenter ants. They're interesting. They've got a lot of work to do. That's all ants seem to do. But we've got one called the American Winter Ant out here that does not get active until the temperatures reach close to freezing, which I thought was interesting. So right now they are estivating deep under the ground for the summer, which sounds like another, um, it'd be kind of difficult for us humans, I think, to estivate um, deep under the ground all (laughs) summer. But if things get any worse, people might be attempting that, I guess. But um, anyway, I thought that was interesting. I'd never heard of a winter ant before, and um, I'm interested to see if we have ants that are active um, only in very cold weather. But I kind of doubt that we do in Mississippi. I think all of ours are active year-round. So um, I found an interesting website. I was poking around the Internet yesterday, and it's called BirdCast. And so if you are someone who is fascinated by... um, Migration. This would be an interesting 
website for you. What I what you can do is you can plug in any location in, I guess, the world, maybe the United States for sure. And it pulls up a dashboard that has a bunch of information about migration. And so I because I live in Pearl, I put in Rankin County. And according to BirdCast, there were 660,600 birds that crossed Rankin County last night uh, during migration, uh, starting at uh, 7.40 p.m. last night and ending at 6.30 this morning. So you have that. You can see the birds in flight, uh, the number. So it's got a chart that shows you, you know, what times were and w- what the birds were in flight. Uh, it has information about their direction and their speed, uh, the altitude, the expected uh, m- uh, birds that you might see if you were able to see these migrating at night. So very kind of a fascinating uh, website. Just uh, all you have to do, what, or what I did was just Google BirdCast, B-I-R-D-C-A-S-T, and this pulls you up, and you can get a lot of fun information about uh, about migration. So just wanted to toss that one out there. thought that might be fun for some folks because birds are certainly a popular topic uh, here on Creature Comforts. Have you ever and, heard of that one, Libby? Yes, I have heard of that one. That's a cool. I like to see the maps and things. And, you know, now is the time to start getting out to see uh, migrating, particularly the water birds, shorebirds, wading birds, uh, Great times to get out for those, and uh, you can look on iNaturalist and on eBird to to find. Like all right, now, you could go on eBird with what you've seen of the migrating and look on Rankin County and see what birds have been reported as you know being seen mm-hmm. on the ground instead of just up in the air so you can combine all of those and really it's kind of amazing there aren't too very many secrets anymore are there (laughs) you can you can find everything out pretty quick (laughs) if you know the right place to go online so the birds um winter migrations were unheard of for years you know people assumed they they traveled in the daytime, and then when we got all these um, technological tools to really see what was happening, a lot of the migrations going on at night, which makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah, much much cooler for sure. Yeah. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Joining us as always from his clinic in Jackson is Dr. Troy Major. Uh, good morning, Dr. Major. I have an email for you here, but first, you know, we're going to be talking about ants this hour. So how harmful are ants to our pets, cats and dogs? Are there a lot of encounters between the, the two? Well, I guess you would have to say that uh, fire ants are the king of uh, encounters and causing as much problem as anything. And a lot of times it's they can cause some uh, fairly severe issues. Uh, most of the time, a dog or a cat will get out of the area, but sometimes there are quite a few bites or stings, and these things can uh, actually develop some pretty severe reactions. Uh, bacterial infection, in a lot of cases, will follow, and uh, that's you know as far as the other ants causing issues with pets, other than being a nuisance if you have food out <laughs> outside. Uh, certainly uh, not a lot of problems with the ants other than fire ants. And would you see that, again, this is sort of where a dog or a cat might see a fire ant mound and just curious and kind of nose around it and, and kind of pay the price? Right, nose around in it, or if there's something on the ground that the dog or cat wants to pick up, uh, cats are probably a little bit smarter about that. But dogs uh, tend to maybe pick up things that have fire ants on them. 
and certainly uh, on the lips and, and mouth certainly can cause some issues. All right. As I mentioned, do have an email here. This one says, I have two nine-year-old rescue cats that are inside, outside in good health. The female has very long black hair. Recently had her groomed for the first time, hoping to help her manage better in the summer. Does grooming actually benefit, or should I leave her as is in the future? Well, I would say that grooming is a very uh, important part of pet ownership. It'd be wise. A lot of cats probably don't get touched with a comb or a brush, but most cats, if you train them to do that, like it, and you can help actually prevent some of this hair ingestion if you're and resultant fur balls, which cats will throw up the fur. Uh, you would certainly minimize that or shorten the amount of time that uh, a cat would be taking in hair. The cat's tongue is such that uh, it just kind of collects it and they swallow it. But, no, I think it'd be wise to uh, comb or brush your cat uh, at least weekly. It would help remove uh, a lot of the uh, dead hair, but also help prevent mats in certain cases where uh, some cats have hair that mats up, mainly a lot of times from just them licking and grooming themselves. It may mat up. So uh, I see nothing wrong with what this uh, person was asking that certainly uh, grooming is a good thing and and you don't necessarily have to take the your cat somewhere you could as you mentioned the uh, we mentioned on the air before the ferminator is one of the comb products that this seems to be fairly successful in helping pull out excess fur and i once had it was a mitt that had sort of a rubbery uh, uh part right. to it and again you know you would just pet your cat and and it it, it it was always amazing to me of how much excess fur does come off of there when they do that so it looks like uh, something that they would benefit from and for the most part one cat i had certainly liked it the la- the last cat i had was not overly fond of it but would tolerate it so uh it certainly with a minimal effort uh, can pay benefits and and help help keep your hat your cat healthy as you said with you know free from mats but also i guess it would keep him a little cooler in the summertime as well you know, I think that if the hair is, is dead or ready to shed, certainly it's good to just go and get that out. And that's what happens a lot of times with the mats. We see some cats that can hardly walk uh, occasionally because the mats get so severe. Uh, and when I say can't hardly walk, they don't have the extension or flexion of their legs and uh, just kind of stumble around almost. So, yes, I think it is wise to uh, groom your cat and dog. Uh, on a regular basis, and that saves maybe having to do baths so often. And if you haven't tried to bathe a cat, uh, you should, uh, simply because it's quite an experience. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Dr. Major, anything that avoids uh, having to bathe your cat is probably appreciated by you and the cat as well. <laughs> and the cat, that's exactly right. It can be done. And a few cats actually uh, jump in the shower with people, you know, they, they like to. Uh, enjoy a shower, let's say, but that may be pretty much the exception rather than the rule. Well, yeah, my cat used to enjoy the shower till he stuck his head too far in there and realized it was wet in there. Then all of a sudden he wasn't too happy about it. All right. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Hey, you want to join our conversation this morning with your question or comment? You can email animals at mpbonline.org. we got our guest, uh, Joe McGowan, lined up and ready to go. But first, we do have a pet question on the line, and it's a, a dog skin question coming from Judy in Natchez. Go ahead, Judy. You're on the air. 
Good morning. We have a little rescue who had a broken hip. She had He had surgery. It was repaired. But he keeps licking that spot. His skin keeps breaking, and he literally leaks. He has had three rounds of antibiotics. It has not helped. Please tell us what to do. Okay. And so this is leaking? Is that what you're saying? Oh, uh, well, he had surgery on his hip. But Right. Drainage, yes. It's draining, yes. Interesting. Uh, how long ago was this? Oh, it's four months at least. Uh, he's been back for three rounds of antibiotic shots. We've put a cone on him. We have put medicine on it. As soon as we take that cone off, we start licking it. And I think that he's a very active little fellow. Right. And I, we don't know what to do with him. <laughs> Can you describe the surgery that he had? Yes, uh, he had a broken hip. Uh, he, he's little and he's playing with big dogs. We don't know exactly what happened, but there were shards in there that were removed. Uh, the doctor has checked it, x-rayed it, said everything is fine. The incision has healed, but around it, he keeps licking his skin and it keeps draining. I, I don't okay. think it's from the incision. Okay, okay. Just because he's licking as much as he is, it causes that. I just wonder if there's some medications that you have given that you would like to tell me, just so I can kind of know. Antibiotic, I'm sure. Well, he's had uh, three strong antibiotic shots. He has taken antibiotics by mouth. Um, We have put uh, a spray that the vet gave us on uh, the skin. Right. We are just, we don't know what to do. Right. Well, certainly there's some irritation there from the surgery. I mean, even though it's been that long and he's attracted to that spot, uh, yeah. there may be nerve nerve changes there that cause a strange sensation that he has to feel. Uh, I would suggest maybe, uh, have you tried Apoquil yes. or Cytopoint? Yes, we have. Not that. We've tried Apoquil. Okay. And did he respond to the Apoquil? No, I'm afraid not. Okay. Well, you know, not seeing is going to be hard for me to tell you a lot lot more. Uh Uh, He he can't, I don't think he can live with a a cone on for the rest of his life. No. But uh, talk to your vet about the possibility of an injectable called Cytopoint. It usually lasts about uh, four to six weeks. And in some cases. And that again? An injectable what? Called Cytopoint, C-Y-T-O-P-O-I-N-T, Cytopoint. Thank you. Okay. And see if that, that might be uh, an answer, uh, okay. other than uh, maybe getting a second opinion. And I know you love your vet and wouldn't be going to him, but you may want to get a second opinion just to uh, verify what's going on. So I would ask him about Cytopoint, okay? Would you suggest? somewhere to take him. We're in matches. Uh, I mean, should we take him to LSU or should we bring him to Jackson? I would say probably LSU would be closer than uh, taking him to uh, State University. I would say this, that uh, there are veterinarians in the area. I'm sure that would be glad to look at him. Uh, you're not that far from what Baton Rouge or veterinarians in Mississippi. So I'm just saying Maybe seek out another opinion, uh, word of mouth, and uh, certainly you could take him to LSU. 
but you do need a referral for that to go, okay? I wish you luck, and I'm surely hopefully you uh, can come to a conclusion that will help him, okay? All right, Judy, thanks for the call. Good to hear from you this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to invite our guest now for the hour, Joe McGowan. He is the ant curator at the Entomological Museum. So, Joe, we appreciate uh, you being on the air with us this morning. If you would, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became the ant curator at the museum. My background is kind of a, a little unusual. Uh, I started out as an artist, and I'm still an artist. I was originally hired in our museum as an illustrator, and we had a funding from the federal government that helps ants, uh, and we um, needed an ant person, so I became the ant guy about 25 years ago. Are ants something that have always fascinated you? Not in particular. I've always been fascinated by insects in general. My dad was actually an entomologist. He studied wasps, and that's why we moved to Mississippi. We came from Maine, and he got his PhD here at the university. So I've been looking through a microscope since I was four years old, off and on. So it's all insects and nature in general has always fascinated me. And you mentioned uh, you're an artist. If you would, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I do. I mentioned I did do some scientific illustration, and I do, I do a little of that still, but I also do, like, surreal, visionary art. I'm heavy in the arts regionally. I do a lot of festivals and art shows. And, um, it's mostly inspired by nature, although some people might not believe it because it's very uh, interesting, or some might say weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are going to be talking about ants today, and I think uh, when it comes to ants in Mississippi, a lot of people might think of fire ants, uh, but right. you don't study fire ants as much as other types of ants. Why is that? Well, we uh, we study, we're interested in all sorts of ants, and we, we want to know what's here, uh, native, and we want to know exotic species coming into the area and how they affect what we have for them. So, Fire ants have been studied uh, in depth by many people. We do we do work with them in different ways. Uh, I can give you an example. We uh, maybe we're looking for a natural uh, way to, you know, fight them. So like I might we have their native in our area that have effective chemicals that can combat fire ants. Select these ants and send them to a lab, and they can pull out these defense chemicals and try to synthesize them. You know, manners of uh, pesticide, if you will. To, these ants, something I might look at. Um, I'm wondering, Joe, we're having a little bit of trouble hearing, and your phone's kind of cutting in and out. I wonder if we might okay. want to see maybe if we can't reconnect with you and, and get a better phone line. Let me, let me see if this is, does it sound better? I might have been under a metal roof. Does this sound better out here? Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll stick with it. Good. Thanks very much. Good. I'll um, go outside. You may hear some cicadas. Uh, that's fine. It is the nature show, so we're good with that that's for right. sure. So how many different types of ants call Mississippi home? Well, you know, this is a, it's an exciting thing since we've started studying it, uh, you know, 20-plus years ago. We first knew there were 107, 108 species in the state, and now we're up to about 195. So we have 100, at least 195 species in the state, probably 200 once we finish looking. And what about um, some of the more common ant species in Mississippi? Uh, what, what would you say those are? Well, you know, there's different kinds of common. Uh, what, what people, you know, regular folks are going to see the larger ants, like your carpenter ants, you know, fire ants. Uh, they have all kinds of common names, sugar ants. But then uh, if you get out and you look uh, up close and then have a, ma- a microscope, you'll see that under the leaf litter in forests, for example, it's say at the base of a tree, you're going to see all kinds of ants that I would call common, but no one else would ever see. They're microscopic. Um, in fact, 
I did a little study of ants at the base of one oak tree up this way, and I found 37 species of ants. That's amazing. Uh, so, yeah, uh, carpenter ants are very common, obviously, though. And, you know, we get, we it depends on where you are in the state and, and habitat-wise. Uh, ants are very habitat-driven, especially native species. And the interesting thing, I well, lots of interesting things about ants, but they're such tiny creatures, but really for their size, I, their strength is, is really impressive. T- talk a little bit about kind of ants in general and, and uh, you know, how, that, that, like I said, that they're these little little dynamos, I guess. They are. They, uh, they, they work together, you know, in units. That, uh, ants, may, many people may not know, they have different cast of ants, and there's a queen who lays the eggs. And uh, they, the queens start out with wings, typically, and they fly, and they have a mating flight, and they find winged males. And the males look completely different, like a different species of insect. And they may, and then the queen will drop her wings and find a place to start a colony, and she'll start producing young, uh, young ants. But they don't look like ants; they're like little larvae, really, which will eventually pupate and turn into adult ants. And uh, the the workers that are produced don't look quite like the queen or the male, and they do all the work typically. So uh, it's a it's a fascinating system. And some ants, you may have uh, a colony. Uh, it's a single colony, or in other cases, you have these super colonies where the whole colony might be thousands of subcolonies. You know, and some of our invasive ants do that, and they're particularly problematic, like Argentine ants. So, um, you know, ant farms are a popular thing for kids. Uh, do all ants kind of burrow underground like that, and we see the top of the ant mound when actually what's underground is really what's going on? Uh, in in many cases, ants do uh, form their nests underground. Like a fire ant might have a nest underground two meters deep, depending on how dry it is, like right now. Uh, but other ants nest in uh, tree cavities, in nut, hollow nuts. You could have an entire colony of a small species of ant in an acorn, hmm. you know. So that's pretty fascinating. Or, or a dead tree, uh, standing dead tree, you might have a colony of carpenter ants. Others uh, will nest under bark of certain trees in grass stems that are hollowed out in stems of trees, you know. So you, you have a, a lot of different situations, but many do nest underground. Some nest underground so deep that they don't really come up. They just live on feeding on other microorganisms beneath the surface there. And they, they're essentially blind, small, reduced eyes. So that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, so do we see ants in all parts of Mississippi, both urban and rural parts of the state? Oh, yeah, they're throughout, they're throughout the region. Uh, um we do have a different array of ants, depending on what part you're in. On our coast, for example, being uh, uh, near ports and whatnot, we bring in, we're bringing in a lot of exotic species um, of ants that are new to the state. So I mentioned 195 species of ants, but uh, about 32 of those are non-native to this state. And we, we uh, continuously are finding new things that are making it through the year here. Uh, it's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, it would seem to me they're such tiny creatures that it would be kind of easy for them to sort of latch onto something and 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 come to Mississippi, you know, inadvertently almost. Yeah, that's right. You have to have a fertile fertilized queen, and it has to make it, and it has to find a habitat and a climate where it would be suitable for it. You know, and, it, and often this is a long term process. You may get one ant come in, and you might note that it's here, you know, fifty years ago, but it might take 40 or 50 years before it builds enough population density where we even notice it but that that's pretty pretty exciting uh one of my favorite ones on our coast now is the 
a large ant about the size of a carpenter ant called the uh, trap jaw ant. It's from South America, and it has huge mandibles. The workers walk around with their mandibles uh, spread out wide, and they can snap their mandibles together rapidly against the surface and jump in the air with their mandibles about four inches, which is amazing. They're jumping in the air with their face. And then these ants also sting. So we've had reports of these things jumping on people, biting them, and then stinging them. And they do sting pretty. They have an amazing sting. I've been stung by them. And so is that a defensive mechanism, or are they aggressive to other creatures? They're, it's both defensive and aggressive. Uh, they use it in defense when uh, when they're def- for defensive purposes. They they jump backwards against a, you know another larger predator potentially. Uh, but if they're trying to kill a prey, they they use it. They may strike something and bounce back and then come back. So they use it in different ways. But they can snap uh, against prey and uh, kill it. That, there's been reports of this species actually killing tadpoles and its native range in South America. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest for the hour is from the Mississippi Entomological Museum. He's the ant curator, so we're visiting with Joe McGowan. We've got some open phone lines, so if you want to join our conversation, if you have a question or a comment, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. So if you have an ant question for Joe or a pet question or wildlife observation, go ahead and give us a call. We've got some open phone lines ready for your call. So, Joe, what kind of uh, a role do ants play in the ecosystem of Mississippi? Well, it, uh, it depends on the species. And, and most ants, we don't clearly understand their entire biology. But, you know, we have uh, species that move seeds around, for example. We have, they aerate the soil. They're, they're obviously great at breaking down, you know, rotting material in the woods, uh, you know, trees, rotting wood and whatnot. Um, they're, they're pollinators. Uh, like a lot of people think of bees as sole pollinators, but many insects and other creatures are pollinators. So especially male ants that are flying around, I've seen many pollinating flowers. Uh, so they have Many, many useful to human aspects, I suppose. For the most part, we don't really, you know, quite understand what they're doing. They're part of a bigger food chain, you know, from the ground up, you know. Uh, So that's probably the most important part, really. Um, Share some examples, if you would, of of ant-plant interactions, maybe seed dispersal, that sort of thing. Well, we have uh, certain uh, um, plants have co-evolved with ant species in the area and other areas to have a seed uh, casing that appeals to an ant, to many species of ants. So the ant is going to go take this food, this seed, because it tastes good to them, and they'll take it back to their colony for food and later you know, disperse the seed outside of the colony typically. So these seeds are then growing and being moved around, and that's, that's many, many plants here. Uh, I don't have any particular ones in mind, but that's, like, fascinating to me. We have others... Um, you probably have heard of uh, fungus growing ants, of gardeners, fungus gardening ants, uh, leaf cutting ants. Mm-hmm. They have they have these in the tropics and also into Texas and Louisiana. These huge colonies. I've seen the colony in Louisiana. You know, it's as big as any building, deep and you know, huge. And they they cut leaves and grow uh, a fungus on the leaves underground, and that's the, and they they that's their food source. We also have uh, related species in Mississippi. Uh, it's a little small. It has small colonies, and it does the same thing. And it's just an amazing thing. You, 
you dig into this little colony and they have a little chamber and they, they grow their own food from fungus, from insect droppings and leaf bits. It's amazing. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, invasive species. So if you would talk about uh, why that is a th- problem, what threat does that pose? And then also, um, how do you begin to manage uh, invasive species? Well, so there's, there's two different things. We have exotic or alien species, which come from other areas into our areas and become established. They may or may not become invasive, but to be invasive, they have to cause a problem on a larger scale for humans or other animals. So a subset of our alien species are invasive. Um, when they come in here, uh, there's, there's several in particular. Obviously, fire ants, many, most people know they're not from the U.S. They're from South America, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're an invasive species, and they've caused, you know, billions in damage and to control. Well, we have others, uh, Argentine ants, that have huge colonies. It caused big problems, uh, infestations in homes and around homes. There's some newer ones in the last few years, the tawny crazy ant on the coast. It's an amazingly prolific ant species that has super colonies, and they seem to be attracted to electricity, and so they cause shortages uh, and uh, outings. I mean, I've, I've seen them, you know, short out breaker boxes and, and anything electrical you can think of, and, they, and they're also bad for wildlife. They, can outcompete small organisms in schools, including birds and small mammals, where they are. They're really bad. Um, but they, so they can have different different issues that we have problems with. Some may sting, uh, like the fire ant, and may cause an anaphylactic shock problem. Uh, there's an Asian needle ant that does that. We're just starting to see that here and there pop up. So those are some cases. Yeah, I've heard about those ants that like the electronics, and, and they sometimes will even infest, uh, you know, the, they find a nice warm spot inside a PC and then just wreck havoc, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen some cases, and they're, they're very localized and so far only down in some of our coastal counties. And they're not everywhere, but where they are, their colonies are expansive. I mean, uh, they, a colony might be a couple acres, you know. With just thousands or millions of queens and males, and it's just a, an amazing thing. They're just everywhere, and but they definitely seem to get into electronics and, and cause huge problems. We've had problems in uh, you know Texas and Houston with NASA. I mean, if uh, these things get into a huge manufacturing plant, they can shut down a plant for a few hours and cause millions of damage in a day. Just man. And also, I guess just the, you mentioned that several of these have such sh- these giant colonies, and I would imagine just the size and sheer number of ants is is part of the problem. And in, in this case, that's a huge part of the problem, and so it makes it difficult to control them with chemicals because they're often located near bodies of water, and you can't just indiscriminately spray pesticides near water or anywhere really. So it's very difficult to control. It's one of these things where you have to have everybody in the neighborhood maybe on board hypothetically or. You know, it's difficult. Um, so um, talk about then um, managing uh, species that we that tend to be invasive. Well, it's, uh, we, you know, we first got it. We, we first learned about them and figured out a little bit about their biology and try to find different tactics to, to manage them. Uh, I don't work in the management uh, part myself, but I work with uh, extension agents and others. So if you have an issue... You know, I, I would always recommend contacting your extension agency. Uh, in, in our department, we have a great couple of folks, Blake Layton. Uh, he knows a lot, and he can give recommendations. But it's 
it's a it's a difficult task as you know we've never gotten rid of fire ants and we probably never will um you may not know this uh fire ants although you know they're non-native they've been here in the u.s for you know uh close to 100 years in mississippi we're a hot spot here in alabama but we, before we had these new ones we had native fire ants here who who uh, they also uh acted similarly and they sting and had but they were driven out by the non-native ones. So we've always had fire ants here. So they fill the same sort of ecological niche, if you will. Um, one thing that contributes a lot to many of the invasive species is, is, is uh, humans ourselves. We create uh, habitats that are, you know, <laughs> uh, more disturbed, more open. Uh, so when you have a, an area, a natural area, say a prairie that's diverse with plant and botanical structure, you'll have a lot more diversity of other insects and, and, and ants in general. And you tend to have less of the invasives in these situations. So we kind of open up the door for them to thrive. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. This is Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the day is Joe McGowan, the ant curator at the Mississippi Entomological Museum. If you'd like to join our conversation, email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. We do have a caller on the line, so let's say good morning to Bridget, who called in from Fulton. Bridget, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, yes. I've got, I think, fire ants trying to get in my house. They um, are in my clothes, in our drawers, on my children's cloth dolls in the bed. And I'm try- I've put a little bit of poison out, more than I feel comfortable with. I have young children. And I, they don't seem to be trying to go after our food or our compost. And it's just kind of driving me crazy. So, uh, Joe, are, are fire ants easily recognizable? How can someone make sure that that's the kind of ant that they possibly getting into their home? Well, they, they are recognizable. They're, they're usually a reddish to, with a little black coloration, and they are aggressive stingers. And, you know, outside you'll often find them in mounds. Sometimes when we have dry weather, You'll see them moving around, looking for moisture. So that's usually a time when they start coming indoors here and there. Uh, one one thing to help keep ants in general out of your home is is keeping uh, uh, you know vegetation away from the immediate edge of your home, and and that in, may include mulch. You know, a lot of people use wood mulch. If you give them a place to nest, they they will nest under mulch, uh, fire ants. So you got to kind of watch that. Um, um, that's it's very likely they do come in at times. So. It's possible. It's not regular, though. All right. So, Bridget, thank you for your call. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines, uh, and we'll go to uh, Rich, who called in from Rankin County this morning. Go ahead, Rich. Your turn. You're on the air. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you for taking my call. I I just wanted to mention a guy that uh, I'm familiar with that uh, just passed away uh, either earlier this year or last year. His name uh, is E. O. Wilson, and he has written a whole lot about ants and many other things in the environment. So I just wanted to mention him, and maybe maybe the expert that's there can say a little bit more about his importance. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Rich. So, Joe, are you familiar with E.O. Wilson? Oh, yeah. Uh, E.O. Wilson, Ed Wilson, was a huge uh, ant researcher who began his life in Alabama. He, he roamed around the hills of southern Alabama searching in nature for things, and he ended up at Harvard. Uh, he, he was an amazing finder of new things. Many of our early invasive records came from him when he was a kid in the 50s from the Mobile area. Um, we actually 
just wrote a paper. I recently wrote a paper about the ants of Alabama with some co-authors, and uh, it came out. We were hoping to get it to him before he died, but he, we ended up putting a, you know, a, a paragraph in there honoring him and his work. So we're always building on the, you know, the foundation that was set up by these earlier researchers, and he was one of the big ones for sure. Um, yep, very familiar with Ed Wilson. All right. Um, I think a little bit earlier we touched on the, the social structures of ants, and it, it seems very st- structured. So if you would uh, tell us, talk a little bit about that. Well, it, it, it does vary, social structures of ants. Uh, it depends on, we have some ants that are more primitive, uh, and they, they don't have large colonies. In fact, there's a couple cases where the queen ant will actually go out and forage, which is very unusual in the more advanced and larger colonies. So we have every bit every range from that to the large colonies that work together with some of the larger colonies have different casts of workers, major and minors to divide the labor. The larger ants, like say big headed ants may have a large worker whose purpose is mainly to crush seed husks. And then, you know, the smaller ones go bring them in to the colony. The large one crushes them. Then they take the food to their larvae who actually digest the food. And then they re (laughs) they, they feed it to the workers. Most workers aren't actually feeding when you see them in nature. They're bringing back the food to be digested by their larvae. Very interesting. Um, we have one species of ant called the vampire ant. Uh, and the mother, it's a small colony-type group, has these serrated jaws. And for extra nourishment early on, she will actually feed on her larvae a little bit. She'll pierce their integument and drink some of the hemolymph. But it doesn't kill them, but you can tell... <laughs> by the scars that they've been fed upon by their mother ant. Isn't that, that's crazy. So they're called <laughs> vampire ants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, glad we don't have that going on with humans. Um, there, it's, a, it's an interesting world. Everything's eating, everything's, everything's feeding on everything. It's, it's very complex. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to mention, um, you know, even though, you know, we're losing habitat across the board and things are changing, we still find new species. I found... At least, I guess nine new species of ants in Mississippi alone. Well, it's pretty pretty remarkable. We, you know, we usually look for small, hidden, weird habitats that haven't been explored. But it's just a matter of resources and having someone study a group. Uh, you know, so we're still finding new things today. Um, in fact, I had people can send me uh, if they have questions and think they have something interesting. They can email me at jmcgowan uh, at entomology.missstate.edu. I had a young man from South Carolina recently, like a high school student. He's sending me specimens this week. I'm pretty sure it's a new species of ant. You know, you never know. Um, what about the life cycle of an ant? How long do these creatures usually last? Ooh, well, that's, that's variable. Uh, for like carpenter ants, some of them, and I don't have a lot of data on this, some of them only last a season. You know, and often a, a queen of a larger colony, like a carpenter ant, it may last. She may, she might last many years, and and then until when the colony gets old enough, it'll produce males and start, you know, that reproductive cycle. But several years to a few months. Workers don't live overly long, though, in general. Because they're out there working. <laughs> they are kind of like honeybees. They have so many, you know, so much they can do, and then. They're, they're replaced, you know, constantly. Um, it's, it's, uh, yep. 
So uh, when it comes to studying ants, talk about, if you would, the challenges of that. Well, you know, you, you obviously need to have a repository of specimens to compare with. You, the biggest thing that's helped me over the years is collaboration with other researchers around the world. And, uh, and the resources today that we have available are so much greater than when I started. We, we have several great websites that will really help. I started one, in fact, long ago called Ants of the Southeastern United States. And uh, I, wanted that, I wanted that to help myself, and it turned into a pretty big site. And then I helped with another couple sites, which is Ant Wiki. And they, we have information about all the ants of the world. We have thousands of ant workers, and we get together and talk about how we can do projects. Uh, different people have specialties in different areas, such as DNA, you know, whatever, uh, statistics. So we can, we can co-author papers and make for better science, I guess you'd say. I wouldn't say it's a challenge. I, it's just a good time to study ants, really. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about the Entomological Museum, it's located on the MSU campus, am I correct? Yeah, uh, we, we are on Mississippi State's campus, uh, the Clay Lyle Building. And it's, uh, it's been uh, evolving since I've been there. I started working uh, as an employee there in 1988. I actually retired about three and a half years ago, but went back and I work part-time. I'm still there every morning studying ants um, and beetles and other things as well. But it's, a, it's a, one of the largest uh, collections of insects in the, in the region. Um, so it's, and we're growing. We have a huge program. We, work, we have an outreach program called Bug Blues, Mississippi Bug Blues. We, we do screening. We, we screen samples of exotic, uh, potentially exotic species of beetles and ants from all over the eastern North America. Uh, we're very active, bringing in specimens and doing lots of surveys. So we got about a minute left. What, Joe, would you say is your favorite part of your job as a as the ant curator at the museum? I, I would say the best thing about working in this entomology museum with ants is every single day I learn something new. Every day, not not no, there's not a day when I don't learn something new, and I, and I love sharing that knowledge either in papers or online or individually. Um, so just constant learning. Uh, is there a way for visitors to uh, go to the museum? Uh, yeah, uh, we, we, it's a research collection, although we are building more stuff in our lobby. Uh, we're open 8 to 5. But, and uh, if, you, if you email us ahead of time, we're online, Mississippi Entomological Museum. You can find all our information there. And you can just email any one of the staff, and we'll arrange for your visit. Um, we love visitors. Come see what we're doing. And uh, how big is the ant part of the collection? The ant uh, is housed in my lab. Uh, it's probably I probably have pin specimens about one hundred fifty thousand pin specimens. Wow! All the right. The main part of the collection is um, you know up around a couple million specimens with different strengths. But uh, the ants, we have the second largest university collection in in this part of the world outside of Harvard of ants. Very good. So if folks are interested, just Google Mississippi Entomological Museum, and they can learn how to uh, maybe take a tour. So appreciate you joining us today, Joe. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by generous contribution from listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit mpbonline.org slash radio. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Joe McGowan, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned, because up next, it's autocorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.